You're listening to These Interesting Times, Surviving 2020 in the Quad Cities, a literary anthology edited by Misty Urban and published by the Midwest Writing Center Press in Rock Island, Illinois. My name is Dylan Parker, and I'll be reading my piece, I've Been Thinking of Becoming a Mechanic. I've been thinking of becoming a mechanic. I used to be one. Loved it, but then I didn't. I bet it'd be easy for me to get back into it. The guys from Local 150 could probably get me a job. Then I'd have a union this time at least. Still have all my old tools. I use them to this day in my garage. I've got a 1983 Yamaha XS650 torn apart all the way down to the crankshaft. Bought it last year since my old XS850 hadn't run in years. I meant to fix that one too. I broke the carburetors while trying to clean them. I got excited to have a motorcycle again when I bought the new one. Well, it's 40 years old, not exactly new, and I rushed taking it for a test drive. Overlooked the large oil leak coming out of the crankcase. Oh well, I can fix it. It's cold now though, and I don't feel like working on it anymore. Maybe when it warms up outside, I'll get back to it. That's what I always told myself about the XS850 though. Never did get around to it. Finally sold it to a kid I met on Reddit for a couple hundred bucks. I was a good mechanic, or at least, I was good at what I did. Never was much of a gearhead, contrary to the popular understanding of mechanics. I'm a skinny guy, trying to pick up a new clutch from the ground and huff it onto the output shaft of an engine never really worked out well for me. I was a diesel mechanic, heavy-duty 15-liter semi-truck engines, the big stuff. I was a little guy working on huge machines. I preferred diagnosing problems and undertaking complete rebuilds when a truck rolled into the shop with a check engine light. I was their guy. I could hook up the shop computer and identify a failed turbocharger just by watching the specs during a regen. The pressure difference between the diesel particulate filter's input and output sensors would be off since the catalyzer couldn't get hot enough. Lots of guys would misdiagnose it by thinking the after-treatment fuel injector had malfunctioned or something like that. It was always the turbo. Cummins had a particular problem with their turbos. They would wear out, resulting in insufficient exhaust gas restriction, preventing the after-treatment injector's fuel from catalyzing. I always thought it was crazy that, in order to ensure cleaner exhaust leaving semi-trucks, they actually sprayed raw fuel onto the exhaust stream after the explosions took place inside the cylinders. Like spraying water onto a forest fire that had already extinguished itself by running out of fuel. Anyway, I always knew it was the turbocharger. I'd easily squeeze out replacing over $10,000 worth of parts when it was covered by warranty. The engineers understood what I was saying. Turbo ain't squeezing the air tight enough to atomize the fuel in the catalyst to burn out the particulate filter. The whole system's bad. It all needs replaced. Filter's too full of ash to be cleaned. Catalyzer's burnt itself out, and the turbo's worn. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, that was the stuff I loved to do as a mechanic. That and complete engine teardowns disassembling those massive 15-liter engines down to every nut and bolt that held them together. There was something about seeing the ideal of an engine transformed into a bunch of individually useless bits of metal that intrigued me. I liked learning how it all worked in synchrony, and then being able to put it all back together like some heavy metal conductor. It all got boring, however. You can only diagnose a failed turbocharger or rebuild an engine so many times before it's just blind repetition. I hate repetition. It always makes me feel like there's something more that I'm missing. Might be why I quit going out to the garage to continue working on my XS650. It got boring. No, it's just the cold. I'll get back out there in the spring. 
My dad was an auto mechanic. I only have vague memories as he went and got himself a midlife college education and moved into a cushy desk job in IT. He was also not a gearhead. He didn't take side jobs, nor did he have wrench hobbies, classic cars, or the like. No, he was into bicycling and computers. To everyone's surprise, he lived through 2020. In fact, like some kind of cosmic gesture, he died January 1st, 2021. The home hospice nurse told us on New Year's Eve that Dad wouldn't make it through the night. I remember sitting by his bed at 11 p.m., holding his hand and swabbing his mouth with a sponge, thinking to myself, you crazy son of a bitch, you're actually going to make it. He did. Not by much, though. My brother woke me at 6 a.m. on New Year's Day with a phone call that Dad had finally passed. I guess he didn't want 2020 to claim him. Can't blame the guy. 2020 took enough lives as it was. He started home hospice back in July. I can't believe it was July. I would have guessed October. Not sure why. I guess it doesn't feel like he was in hospice for nearly half a year. Though everything in 2020 seemed to have progressed both painfully slow and incredibly fast. For five months, I visited him every afternoon. Most days usually consisted of helping him figure out why his Bluetooth mouse and keyboard had disconnected from his computer. I recently counted four computers and their associated monitors, USB drives, and additional technological paraphernalia while helping my mom clear out his office. It was obvious that my 70-year-old father didn't need that many computers, but he had collected them over the years. After being admitted to home hospice, my dad decided his before-dying goal was to organize the thousands of digital photographs he had accumulated through his late-in-life hobby. Said photographs had been saved, copied, edited, and stored across all those computers. He concluded, however, that he didn't need all the keyboards and mice. For his birthday, I purchased him a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse that was able to connect to multiple devices and switch between them with the click of a button. Four separate keyboards and mice consolidated into one. It was pretty slick. However, it never failed that I'd find him unable to communicate with any of his computers, having become confused and clicked the wrong button or unknowingly disconnected from one of the devices. I'd find him hunched over his desk, staring off with an all-too-familiar foggy gaze, helpless to his deteriorating cognition. One time, I asked him if he was mad at his fate. He told me no except for times when he was unable to execute a mental task he had initiated. His existence was a tragedy, completely conscious of his capacity, yet unable to access it. This was compounded when his body began failing him too. At the end, he was too rigid to do anything but lay in bed and occasionally sit up to chat when I visited him. He was still in there, though, trapped by his neurons. As the end approached, I sent a message to my uncle on Facebook updating him on my father's status. It prompted an enjoyable discussion regarding my dad and his life. My uncle shared some context of my dad's decision to become a mechanic. Prior to that, as I knew, he was enrolled in the University of South Dakota's art program. I've got old posters drawn by him hung up in my house. Far before my existence, my dad was a long-haired student who engaged in guerrilla art. He once shared how he filled the windows of the university's pottery studio with a large banner that read, A good beer is better than good pottery. Kind of an Abby Hoffman vibe, though apolitical. My dad didn't actively participate in the anti-Vietnam movement, but he did enjoy the philosophy, art, and thinking of postmodernism. My uncle explained that he saw my dad's decision to drop out of art school and learn how to fix cars 
as a rejection of their father's world of ideas. Grandpa was a minister turned English professor who ultimately returned to preaching. He was all, always chasing heavenly concerns of truth, morality, justice, and love. I can relate to my dad's decision. After graduating with degrees in philosophy and behavioral neuroscience, I decided to go work on a farm, Mississippi River barge tugboats, and ultimately an auto shop too. To some extent, it was a curiosity for that which cannot be learned within the halls of academia, stuff like grit, though there's plenty of philosophy in fixing cars too. In the 90s, my dad distributed a family newsletter wherein he shared updates on matters like the potty training status of me and my brother, but also lengthy diatribes on chaos theory and met metaphysics. He called it Joe's Garage, where he took on the alter ego of a greasy mechanic who kept the cosmic machines of quantum physics in operation. My uncle suggested that members of our family are cursed with a perverse tendency to not follow a clear path to success. We accept some kind of mystic determination and embrace our existential contradictions. He shared that my father had once dubbed this nihilistic romanticism. Whatever you want to call it, I think he's right. As far as I can tell, everything in life boils down to diagnosing a millionth failed turbocharger. I shared this conversation with my dad. It was closer to the end, and the reality of his mind becoming entombed within his ailing nervous system was quite apparent. We chatted about it for a bit. Perhaps I shouldn't use the term chatted, as my father's communication was reduced to spelling out words by pointing to a printed alphabet. It made for very slow dialogue. I was getting ready to leave, but I could tell he was trying to say something. For a moment, I was worried that he was in an uncomfortable position or needed another dose of morphine. Eventually, he was able to blurt out, pragmatic idealism. The man spent most of his days sleeping in bed, but he felt it important enough to ensure the record was corrected. My father was a pragmatic idealist, not a nihilistic romantic. When COVID hit the states in early 2020, Congress passed the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, this legislation allowed workers who had lost access to their kids' childcare to take emergency paid leave for up to 12 weeks at two-thirds their rate of pay. My wife was working on the front lines as a registered nurse in the ICU, and I was stuck working from home with our kids. Immediately upon learning about the paid leave option, I opted not to try and juggle work and childcare responsibilities and took a 12-week semi-paid leave of absence. The whole world felt like it was falling apart. My wife and I were discussing whether she should live in a hotel so as to avoid unintentionally bringing the virus home, businesses were being shut down, and we were ordered to shelter it in place by the governor. At the same time, I didn't answer a single email for weeks on end. My three-year-old and I started a daily pilgrimage around the neighborhood, facilitating a stroller nap time, but also simply enjoying being outside. We explored every nook and cranny of our neighborhood and the neighborhoods surrounding ours. I listened to books on tape, painted several rooms in our house, and started playing Dungeons and Dragons over the internet with a frequency not seen since high school. I had nothing to do and nowhere to be. It was liberation. It was freedom. I absolutely loved it. Eventually, the kids were able to return to their childcare, and I went back to work. But I was left with a profound sense of uncertainty. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Nietzsche wrote about an eternal recurrence. He hypothesized that, after death, 
we simply relive the very same life we depart. Not in a progressive sense, like Hinduism's reincarnation, wherein we return as some other kind of being living a different life, but that we will repeat every second of our life into infinity. For example, I've sat down to write this an infinite number of times before, in previous lives, and I will do so again in the next lives. It either prompts terror of having a heavenly promise revoked, or a peace of being content with every second of one's life. If we are condemned to live every moment of this life ad infinitum, are we making the very best use of our time? Or even more than that, it's not like we can choose, in this hypothesis, to do something else since we've already done it before. So we are left to simply accept the reality of things and savor in our experience. Some may call it a curse, but I don't see it that way. I don't think my dad did either. I've been thinking about becoming a mechanic. In a lot of ways, I miss the old gig. I liked the physical demand and sense of accomplishment that accompanies labor. I still bristle when my friends tease me for being white-collar. I prefer the company of workers and am more comfortable in coveralls than a sports jacket. Am I just getting bored with my current path in life? No matter what I choose, will it all just be rebuilding motors? Was my dad satisfied with his life at the end? Will I be? It has become overwhelmingly apparent that the clock is ticking. I miss quietly sitting with my father and having no reason to speak. I miss walking with my daughter, having nowhere to go. Thank you for listening to These Interesting Times. This audio presentation is made possible by a partnership between WVIK, Quad Cities NPR, and the Midwest Writing Center in Rock Island, Illinois. Support for this project comes from the Illinois State Library.